When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, examining the huge wealth disparity in the United States with Don Jeffries, the author of Survival of the Richest. And the fact we get so many of our items from China, the most totalitarian society on earth, and a country that our business world shamefully emulates these corporate leaders that just extol the virtues of China because they've got people living in, in you know little eight by ten bunk bed type arrangements, and, and they would love to see that for Americans. This podcast is brought to you by BrightBiz. If you own a business or you've dreamed of starting one, there's a helpful free guide with 36 business power tools proven to boost sales, increase income, simplify your life, and give you better results with less effort. Best of all, this business toolbox is yours absolutely free. And these are useful online tools that make doing almost anything a lot easier. Just visit freebusinesstoolbox.com and grab your copy. I know there are a lot of websites that offer you a special deal, but then they stick you in some recurring program. This isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try. BrightBiz is giving away this guide free of charge as a means of putting their best foot forward. But all good things must come to an end, so don't wait. Grab your free guide today. Visit freebusinesstoolbox.com. freebusinesstoolbox.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. How is this Wednesday already? Did I open up some kind of time portal when I built my little studio beneath the stairs? The way time passes so quickly, I swear, it, it it's frightening at times. It actually makes me anxious. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. A really ripe banana. I don't know. I, I thought maybe quoting Groucho Marx would lessen my anxiety. It didn't work. A lot of people are anxious these days about everything, their jobs, uh, the geopolitical situation. But there appears to be continued good news on the economic front, at least in the United States, not so much here in Kanakistan. I was just reading this in the New York Times. Next month, another milestone, the current recovery there will become the second largest American economic expansion on record. It goes on, there is no sign that the rebound will end anytime soon. Unemployment is low, job creation is strong, and the overall economy seems to be gaining momentum, not losing it. Well, my guest is far more skeptical about the health of the U.S. economy, at least as far as the average worker is concerned. He's sounding the alarm that the wealth inequality gap that grew under President Obama may have entered a dangerous new phase where the 1% rich are getting richer. 
through the systemic exploitation of unfair advantages perpetrated by globalist free trade policies that doom the poor to get poorer. Donald Jeffries is the author of The Unreals, a novel lauded by the likes of multi-award winning author Alexander Thoreau and Night at the Museum screenwriter R. Ben Garrett. He's also the author of Hidden History. His latest is called Survival of the Richest, How the Corruption of the Marketplace and the Disparity of Wealth Created the Greatest Conspiracy of All. And I should point out in the interest of full disclosure, I wrote the foreword. Don Jeffries, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you, my friend? Fine, Richard. Thanks for having me. Survival of the Richest, How the Corruption of the Marketplace and the Disparity of Wealth Created the Greatest Conspiracy of All. Let me get a report card from you on President Trump in terms of his efforts to sort of redress some of the things that you talk about in this book, the wage disparity, wage stagnation, and so forth. Uh, Let's start with, with wages. We are seeing, for the first time in many years, a slight tick up in wages. Well, that's that again. That's what we hear. Uh, still not certain because politicians can twist uh, these statistics any way they want. For instance, Donald Trump. One of the impressive things about him during his campaign, he was the first person to call out the fake unemployment rate, and that's uh, ever since uh, I believe the 1990s under the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, they re- <clears throat> they redid the way. They uh, <clears throat> construe the un- the unemployment rate, and instead of actually being people that are unemployed, they just take the people that are currently filing for unemployment benefits. So Trump now is bragging about those same statistics. I'm not sure that means anything good for the working class of, of this country. But in terms of I, – I never would have thought that uh, Donald Trump was going to be a Huey Long type in terms of sharing the wealth. Certainly, he's far from that. But the two policies that he did talk about that would have impacted that were trade <clears throat> and uh, also immigration. Uh, on both fronts, it appears like he may be doing something, but I, I've been disappointed overall in both – both, mostly very disappointed with him in other aspects, foreign policy, for instance. But in terms of trade, uh, we'll see what happens with these tariffs. I, I wrote again on the, the other day, we talked about uh, Trump is the strangest politician I've ever seen. He, in the same week that he uh, encountered the wrath of the establishment for putting tariffs, which no president uh, you know, had dared to do for a long time for fear of being called protectionist, uh, he at the same the same time he names Larry Kudlow, who's one of the biggest free traders in the business, as his top economic advisor. So it's it's that kind of dichotomy between what Trump says and the people he nominates to those around him. He did the same thing earlier <clears throat> in that week when he uh, very rightly told uh, countered George Bush's George W. Bush's criticism of him by saying that entering Iraq was the worst decision ever made. But then he named two of the biggest supporters of the war on terror and the war in Iraq, and Mike Pompeo and the, the new CIA director, who was a specialist in torture, apparently. So had, I don't understand that kind of uh, mindset where he does th- he he puts people around him that completely contradict what he's saying. So whether he'll continue the strong trade policies when everyone around him is apparently uh, opposed to any kind of so-called protectionism, I don't know. And we see the same thing with immigration, where that was his. Uh, his bread and butter issue and certainly would attracted a lot of us to his campaign. It's been a mixed bag. Again, his rhetoric stirs the masses up and continues to get uh, certainly the haters against him. But really, there has not been, uh, for instance, the H-1B visa program. He could have ended that back almost a year ago, last April. He didn't do it. And uh, that, that is just e- been explain, explain that what that visa program entails. 
Well, it primarily brings in people mostly from India, and it's uh, mainly to the IT industry, although they have seeped into other areas. For instance, medicine. You're, you're having doctors coming into these visa programs. So uh, eventually, maybe when it affects some of the really high-paying jobs, you might hear something about it. But in IT, we certainly see, for instance, they bring a, a visa worker over from, again, usually India, and uh, they'll pay them, say, $40,000 instead of the $80,000 or whatever that they're paying for a current American citizen who's a computer programmer or an analyst or whatever. And it is uh, devastating the IT industry because it's driving down wages much the same way that illegal immigration drove down wages at the bottom of the economic ladder. And they started to, talking about Americans. They're just doing the jobs Americans won't do. Well, for the visa workers, they use a slightly different mantra, and that is we can't find – they have skills Americans don't have, which is absolutely absurd. They don't have skills Americans don't have. What they do have, just as the illegal immigrants have, is a willingness to work for far less money and far fewer benefits than American citizens traditionally have. Explain how illegal immigration hurts two two uh, groups in particular, uh, Latinos and blacks. Well, certainly, it, it certainly especially impacts uh, blacks who tend to be disproportionately poor and who had a lot. For instance, uh, we see if you if you look around at uh, any kind of business now that employs a, uh, a housekeeping crew, uh, used to at one time you used to see that was overwhelmingly consisting of uh, black Americans, uh, some poor whites as well. But but black Americans dominated that. And but. At that time, even jobs like that were kind of the lowest on the economic ladder, paid enough so that the people doing them could buy houses conceivably. Certainly, they could live in apartments. Uh, what has happened is that industry, again, has been taken over. If you look at any business, they employ almost exclusively uh, Hispanic crews, and I, I think the overwhelming majority of them are pro- almost certainly illegal. And they pay them you know, probably under the table in many cases. They're not paying uh, any kind of withholding taxes. They're not paying into the Social Security system, which is, again, going to impact eventually that system that's going to explode anyhow just from the, the general math behind it. But that certainly uh, just adds to it. But clearly, the, those those wages are being driven down. So what was uh, – again, they're, they're saying they're doing jobs that Americans – won't do. Well, I was there and a lot of us were there and we saw that Americans did do these jobs. They did used to cut the grass. They did used to do the landscaping. They used to work on the roofs and do construction. Obviously, these things were built before. And uh, we we don't know what the bridge that collapsed, for instance, last week, which I'm still trying to figure out how a brand new bridge can collapse like that. I've I've never heard of anything like that, even in the worst third world country. How does a brand new bridge collapse? Basically, the first time it's used almost. Who knows to what extent what kind of labor they had involved there? We already know they kind of had one of those typical corrupt political uh, you know, contracting uh, firms out there that which we see all the time in this construction industry. But who knows what kind of labor they had there and what they were paying them. So uh, this is a huge problem, and but it's hard, especially with my friends on the left, where I, I ostensibly am on the left, but I disagree with them strongly about immigration because they're just so – clinging to this notion that these are these poor, unhuddled masses. Well, it doesn't matter what they are, where they're from, what color they are. We don't need any more people here. We already don't have enough jobs and services, resources for the people we have here. American citizens are struggling, especially the 80% or so that are working uh, jobs that, that don't pay them enough to meet the ever-costing, ever-increasing uh, cost of living. I think when you have 70-some percent of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, the last thing on earth you ought to be doing is importing more uh, cheaper foreign labor. Why did the left, why did the Democrats abandon that message? And is it true 
that you you hear uh, conservative commentators and and some of the ones that I follow maintaining that the reason the Democrats are pushing for open borders and almost encouraging illegal immigration, sanctuary cities, and so forth is because it's it's about the vote. They and at some point we're going to see federal courts ruling that illegals have the right to vote. Is that where we're going with this? I, I think there's no, no doubt about it. I post about this stuff all the time on social media and on my blog. They have all but given them the right to vote in California. Uh, Jerry Brown signed a law which allowed uh, driver's licenses to be used as identification at the voting uh, polling places. So if, if they've already ruled that illegal immigrants can get driver's licenses, which is just another <laughs> ridiculous uh, thing that we, we've done to help destroy this country. Again, what, what good are immigration laws when you're doing something like that? So therefore, if they can use driver's licenses and that's considered a legitimate form of identification, they can vote. So and I believe it's already been acknowledged that one of the things Trump was right about in his charges with that several million, three to five million or whatever it was, illegal immigrants voted in the last presidential election. I think probably 99 percent of them voted for Hillary Clinton. So you, you can look. That was pretty much the difference in the popular vote. Uh, if When you give non-citizens illegal or legal or illegal, but especially illegal, when you give them the right to vote – you dilute the value of citizenship to where it's 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 practically negligible. What is the point of being an American citizen if a non-citizen can vote? Can you imagine going to China or Japan or any country in the world as a tourist? I mean, it's, theoretically, you could just go there and take a vacation during the election season and vote for the elections in those countries. That that's crazy. It, it destroys national sovereignty. If we're going to be a sovereign nation, we but. We've already talked about this. And one of the other things Trump said is we, we either have a country or we don't when he was talking about the borders. If you're not going to guard your borders and you're going to allow non-citizens to vote, then you've really given up your sovereignty already. So it's it's just a, a ridiculously deadly game the left is playing here. And I, I think if you took a poll, the vast majority of Democrats are in favor of illegals voting because they know they will vote for Democrats. I saw a poll, 75% of Californians, 75% of Californians, uh, and many of those, the vast majority uh, would be Democrats, oppose sanctuary cities. I know it's a little, this is not exactly the same thing we're talking about here, but what are your thoughts on, on, uh, on sanctuary cities? And, and is this going to, I mean, could this lead to, uh, I mean, the, the, the fact that we have states and cities thumbing their nose at federal law, I mean, isn't that what led to the Civil War? Yeah, we're we're we are. Uh, the only reason I think we're avoiding Civil War at this point is because Americans have been have become so fat, literally fat and happy, um, through having a higher standard of living for so many years in the post-war era, and some of that is still there. For many of us, we still have a good standard of living, and you know, better than most of the world, and not all the world anymore, but. Because so many people are losing that again, I think uh, the, the problem is the people that would be most Im- that are most impacted by the immigration policies and some of these other crazy trade policies and so forth. They have become so uh, submissive. I, I, I akin it to the you know being in the bent over posture for so long that they literally don't know how to get up. So I don't know what it would take to ever get people to stand up. But certainly, uh, I hope it doesn't come to the fact when they're having to fight for food in the streets, which it could come to if things things absolutely collapsed. uh, You could have something like that. I I don't know that enough Americans would ever get angry enough, though, 
especially even about something like immigration, because the ones that would get angry are the ones who have no power at all and have been beaten down some the people that are you know living in trailer parks and homeless and uh, ghettos that at this point and many of them are addicted to drugs and alcohol because they're trying to drown out what, what has become a miserable existence for them the best they can to deal with it so i i don't know you know the american revolution that was the war for independence in america was fought uh, primarily by a very small percentage of the people that supported it. And it was done because the, the some of the richest men in this, our society at that time, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Sam Adams, John, John Hancock, they were, these were all huge one percenters of their day. They're the ones that wanted it. And I, I don't think you could have got a groundswell uh, uprising then or now at any time from the masses because I just don't think – it's in people to do that unless things become so desperate, and I don't, I don't think they've reached that point yet, and uh, they may not ever. I, I, I don't see how the economy can continue the way it is, but they may be able to just tweak it along on life support. And as we're seeing when you talked about sanctuary cities, is you, if you look in like Orange County, California, there's lots of videos. I posted them online and Facebook a while back for people to see and it's amazing they, they've had people out there that have taken video tours of the some of these parts of orange orange county again one of the richest areas of the united states very uh, celebrated place it looks like a, a just like a banana republic a third world country it's shameful the condition of it, the way people are living there between the homeless and just this the, the look of the sanctuary cities it's taken on it doesn't look like america anymore and i know Somebody said, well, that's racist. How's America supposed to look? Well, it's not supposed to look third world. It's not about where the people are coming from. But America should be and is the wealthiest country in the world. It's just the problem is our wealth is so poorly distributed that the vast majority of our citizens don't enjoy the lifestyle that we should be living. Let's talk tariffs uh, for a moment because uh – you know, a lot of great industrial powers like Germany, for example, were built uh, on tariffs. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, certainly espoused the uh, the value of, of tariffs. Uh, yet President Trump is taking a great deal of flack, uh, you know, for for this idea of slapping a 25 percent tariff on on steel or aluminum. But they're going to carve out some exceptions like Canada, for example. What's so wrong? What's what's the downside, rather, of, of tariffs? Well, I, I don't think – now, the, theoretically, hypothetically, what, what the, the establishment says is that the tariffs are a tax raise on the, on the uh, consumer, on the American public, because you're, you're going to pay more for products uh, if they're built – because uh, they're going to go up because of uh, the tariffs that are on them, so the, the country is going to have to manufacture – uh, a higher selling price. And, and I understand that. But what they don't say, and really tariffs are meaningless if we don't bring production back to this country, because it, it, they will just become a ta- uh, tax increase or a price increase for consumers if we can't bring factories back to America. And uh, the argument against that is, well, those factories are never coming back. That time has passed us by. Well, the factories are there. They exist. They just exist uh, with slave labor in, in, in countries that allow that. So they certainly could exist here, and we need to be you, – you have to manufacture something. If you don't manufacture something as a country, again, you lose your national sovereignty because then you're going to be dependent on those who do manufacture it. And the fact we get so many of our, of our uh, items from China, the most totalitarian society on earth, and a country that our business world shamefully 
uh, emulates. And I have a lot of that in the survival of the riches and all these, these corporate leaders that just extol the virtues of China because they've got people living in, in, in you know, little eight by 10 bunk bed type arrangements. And, and they would love to see that for Americans. And you're seeing that in America in many cases with these micro apartments and so forth that are becoming, uh, or they're trying to push constantly on us because they're trying to push to Americans diminished expectations of uh, living. Uh, so that uh, we get used to this uh, banana republic type of uh, atmosphere that we've built. You see it in the working world where the new normal is uh, things you traditionally enjoyed for decades, uh, things that we had under the, uh, the legislation passed in the late 1930s uh, that was done uh, because of pressure of people like Huey Long from the extreme left who wanted a 20 or 30 hour, maybe even a 20 hour work week and advocated for, uh, he was advocating for national health care and things like that back then. But because of the pressure from Huey Long, the best thing that came out of the New Deal was this legislation in the late 30s that uh, mandated a 40 hour work week, the concept of overtime and sick leave and vacation, um, eight-hour day, things like that that we now take for granted, but most people don't realize. But prior to that time, American workers did not have that right. My, my grandfather, I tell people all the time, worked 365 days a year as a, as a security guard. He didn't even have Christmas off. He came home and 12 hours a day. He came home on Christmas to eat lunch with his family, and he wasn't at all unusual for the lower middle class of his time. I, I, Huey Long, was that's the kind of stuff he saw. He was talking about. He was talking about people like my grandfather and, and millions of others like him. And the fact that we've gone backwards now because we did er eradicate that kind of thing with the legislation we have now, but so many people, especially on the right, the Republicans, the Paul Ryan types, they would love to. They would love. To, they've already had introduced legislation before to to get rid of the concept of overtime. They hate paying people more. They would like to be able to people to again work people 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. And if you get sick or you just, for whatever reason, you want to take a vacation, you miss your job, they'll just hire somebody else, and they'll pay you less than they used to pay you when you were working a 40-hour work week. That is really what the if if we don't have some kind of put some kind of check on the the right wing. That's what you're going to get, and I, you know, I, workers shouldn't want that, but I, I talk to people all the time, and it's amazing how many people have accepted the changes, uh, you're not getting a yearly raise. It used to be automatic almost for every job. You get some kind of a yearly merit increase or a cost of living increase or both. Not anymore. The new normal, which I talk a lot about in Survival of the Richest, is that uh, you, know, you, you see benefits eliminated. Again, not that long ago, companies would be advertising, hey, come, and they, they give you your slew of benefits they have, and they try to, to want, upstage each other. They try to give you better benefits, and they recognized, again, that there were certain things that were standard, and it was because of the presence of strong unions back then. You, I, one of the talking points I've used recently, I found a, a friend of mine, or through a friend of mine, that someone used to work at Safeway, as a, a national grocery store chain here. Back in the early 1980s, he was making $17 an hour back then, which would have been $35,000 a year as a cashier at a grocery store because of their strong union. Hmm. $35,000 today would be over $112,000. So can you imagine that, that same company, Safeway, is paying cashiers less than $10 an hour now. Or they're There's replacing no them. Now all the cashiers yeah. are, are being replaced uh, I hate those things. I never, I never oh, use them. They never oh, work. Yeah, yeah, no, and and that's a, and I I try to talk to people, but I I've given up because people, they think it's uh, they're not looking at the the impact of that year, and that's by going to those self uh, checkout play, things, you are 
exceeding to what the corporation wants and you're helping to eliminate jobs. If you just leave them alone and never use them, they'll have to put cashiers and you're not even saving yourself any time. I've, I've watched people, like you said, they don't, they'll, they'll struggle with it and they, have, they probably have to ask for help. And you'll, they'll take longer than I'm taking in the regular line. I'll just wave to them as they go by because they're not doing anything to benefit themselves. If they want to save a minute, okay. I still think it's very selfish to do that when it could cost someone's job. But people... That's one of the problems. I mean, I don't know if it's that way all over the world, but certainly with Americans, Americans have become very uh, self-centered, narcissistic, and they are only concerned about their own problems. They don't look at the big picture, and they don't realize how these kind of things is. It's as long as it's not me. Hey, that's cool. You know, I'm doing okay, buddy. You know, that's that's the line they always get. Well, I'm doing fine. You know, my kids are doing fine. My job's secure. Well. A lot of people's aren't, and you ought to have a little empathy for them, but Americans just don't seem to have much empathy for others these days. That's true, but people do care about their dogs. And this message is for dog owners. How would you like to be able to develop your dog's hidden intelligence, to eliminate bad behavior and create the obedient, well-behaved pet of your dreams? A woman named Adrienne Ferricelli, a professional certified dog trainer, has helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, loving pets by bringing out that hidden intelligence inside the dogs. You can quickly eliminate any behavioral problem your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's ingrained, no matter what kind of dog you own. The science behind this is simple. You may have heard of neuroplasticity in the human brain. Our brains are capable of learning new behaviors. Well, your dog's brain has that same plasticity. And with the right mental stimulation that Adrian teaches, any dog's brain will become more open and receptive to learning new information. Your dog will listen to you and understand what you want it to do. When this happens, bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system, just visit realbusinessbargains.com. That's realbusinessbargains.com. realbusinessbargains.com. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Don Jeffries, the author of Survival of the Richest, is here. Uh, just getting back to tariffs for a moment, because you mentioned China, and I was talking about uh, steel. And uh, obviously, you know, these, these factories are, are still out there, and the, the, the machinery is still out there. They're, they're probably operating at maybe, you know, 5% capacity hmm. compared to 40, 50 years ago. Uh, but I just, you remember, you know, during the Second World War, when people were encouraged to take the bumpers off their car and melt it down and, uh, or to recycle it and, and, and uh, for the war effort. Mm -hmm. Because even back then, we didn't have the c capacity, you know, the steel, uh, enough steel to uh, to build enough tanks and so forth. What's going to happen if we have to go to war with China or some other country? I mean, we and we're dependent on on our on our steel. We're dependent yeah. on China for our steel. Well, we don't even. We, I mean, we don't make uh, things like shoes really much in this country. We can't even put the boots on the foot soldiers. I don't think. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's. America has created – our leaders have created so such a huge problem that it's not going to be easy to fix. And that's why I've been criticized so much for supporting Trump initially. But 
as I said, if he did anything, if he just did something positive about immigration alone, he would have done anything. He would have been more for this country than any president we've had in a long time. Um, I don't know that he's going to do that. And if he just did something about trade that was positive, that would be a great thing too. If he just built the infrastructure – and we, we saw now, I, I don't know if we're going to get the kind of infrastructure that uh, was that new bridge that was built the other day. That kind of infrastructure is we, we don't need. I guess we'll keep the, the dilapidated and crumbling old infrastructure. That's the case. But we definitely need to update our, our – we, America doesn't look like a first world nation. And it's because of these deadly policies, the trade policies, the immigration policies, the killing of unions – uh, so that wages and benefits have been decreased for the vast majority of people, you have to have money to be able to buy whatever few products you're, you're manufacturing, which isn't much in America these days, or that you're importing from abroad, which is most of the stuff. Certainly all the electronics and so forth that we all love to play with, all the gizmos and toys, uh, they're not being built here. Why can't they be built here? And I wish Trump would focus on that more, but again, he just seems incapable of doing that. And uh, he does he does do a thing, a few things here or there that I support still, but uh, we need somebody really in there that that is going to fight for the vast majority of the people and really want to make America, you know, making America great again. Well, I, you got to do a lot more than, than Donald Trump or anyone else is doing. You have to you have to certainly rebuilding the infrastructure is something that's decades overdue. I, I really don't think we've addressed the infrastructure very much since Eisenhower, you know, built the uh, the national highway system back in the, in the late 50s. Uh, so certainly at the time that looked great and cutting edge, but our infrastructure is embarrassing now. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous and it pales in comparison to other first world countries. And it shouldn't be that way. But when you have such misplaced priorities, and this is why it's going to be so difficult you can see about foreign policy, Trump is easily, although he t talked against it during his campaign, he's distracted nonstop by these boogeymen abroad, Syria, Iran, North Korea, Russia, whatever you want to talk about. And that takes the people's minds. And it always has taken Americans' minds off the very real problems they have around them. And they can rally around whatever boogeyman the media is uh, has created at the moment instead of looking around them and realize their country is collapsing. They're not making the money they should. Their social security system is in jeopardy. Um, their pensions are being eliminated. You have to do something about the very real problems that, uh, that exist in this country. So what does what does one do? Dissatisfied with Trump and the Democratic Party is even moving further to the left, if that's possible. Uh, they're uh, indistinguishable from the socialists. Yeah, well, and the, 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 they're moving to the left in all the wrong directions because they're not moving to the left where I am. And that's, again, why so many of them have ignored my book, Survival of the Riches. They don't seem to care about the income disparity, the most important. They don't, talk, they don't care about why jobs used to pay a certain amount and why they don't pay anymore. The, the, I use the Safeway uh, example or Circuit City. We had a big electronic chain, Circuit City, here that back in the 80s. I know for a fact that, that, that the salesmen back there were making in, in the 30,000s in the 1980s. Again, that would be over 100,000 now. That chain went out of business. Uh, but you can you imagine Best Buy or any of the other big electronic firms that exist in this country paying their employees that? Never. But this is the kind of thing no one else is focusing on. The left is the left is too busy because when you say they've moved to the left, they've moved into the social justice warrior political correctness territory where their entire purpose is just to, to, to police thought, police speech, and to try to get people fired for saying something that offends them. And they've come to the point now where virtually anything offends them, where everything's racist or sexist or homophobic. 
and that's all they care about. They don't. They really don't care about the the bread and butter issues that the Democratic Party left used to talk about. I talk about um, in several interviews. I mentioned about big labor. When was the last time big labor was even mentioned? Does anybody even try to get? Labor's endorsement anymore. You used to have leaders like Walter Ruther and George Meany and these kind of maybe mafia-tinged guys who weren't necessarily uh, my cup of tea, but they existed for uh, – and, and they did overall good because unions being strong lifted the wages of non-union businesses as well. The left doesn't talk about that anymore. Bernie, I don't hear Bernie Sanders you know, decrying the lack of unions or talking about uh, – you know, why, where are all the big labor leaders? Because they don't exist. Ever since Reagan busted the air traffic controllers in the 1980s, from there it was downhill. And if you look back to, you know, the 60s and 70s, certainly, and all the labor, all the Democratic parties used to have to come and kiss the, kiss the ring of these labor leaders to get their endorsement. They don't have to do that anymore because the labor endorsement means nothing because they don't care about labor. All they care about is political correctness and social justice warriorism and uh, transgender bathrooms and, and nonsense like that that turns off a huge chunk of the public. And they're just not – and I, I guess that's why they don't like much of what I'm saying because I, I can't stand that stuff. But even if I could, I would still concentrate on on the uh, the, the issues of uh, jobs and what jobs are paying, uh, infrastructure, uh, our deadly foreign policy where it's all war and no peace. But the left, the same thing when you talk about the country different than the left. I, there are few, if any, anti-war critics on the left. Hillary Clinton loves war. Bernie Sanders has supported all the wars. Unless you talk about people, you know, my friends like Cynthia McKinney, uh, Cindy Sheehan, people like that who are outside that Democratic Party mainstream, Dennis Kucinich even, hmm. who could could not back, get back in Congress. Because these people, they weren't just uh, social justice warriors. They cared about, they criticized our foreign policy, and they would talk about why, why aren't we doing things to help American workers. Yeah, you didn't leave the Democratic Party. It seems like they left you and yeah. Dennis Kucinich and, and, and all the rest that you just mentioned. Uh, do you ever see – maybe it's time for a third party. Well, third, fourth, fifth. I mean it, it, something else awful about America. America seems to only be pro-choice about abortion. They don't seem – Americans don't seem to like choices. You know, Don't confuse us too much. I mean you, you look at the uh, European countries. They have a slew of party candidates and they have proportional representation too, which I, I've come to believe is the way to go here because, it's because we have these two deadly parties who are in agreement on all the most important issues. And in the areas where they disagree – both choices are so bad. I mean, you either have the Paul Ryan type of Ayn Rain worship on one side, or you have the Hillary Clinton uh, social justice warrior uh, political correctness on the other side. They're both awful choices. There's, there is no choice between you. You might have once had theoretically the choice between kind of a uh, conservative, smaller government, traditional uh, one on the right and on the left, uh, progressive uh, – Let's uh, let's build things and, and, and so forth on, on the party of the little man on the left. And you don't have that anymore. There's no so certainly, yeah, we're, we're ripe for a third party. And I, I've always been distressed why, for instance, we had a chance, I think, when Ross Perot formed the Reform Party and uh, then Pat Buchanan got the nomination. And again, it turned off people on the left when Pat Buchanan was 
I, I consider Pat Buchanan the foremost anti-war critic in the United States over the last 30 years. He's yes. been, he's, yes. he's the only, and, but people think of him as a racist or anti no. He's been against every war. I think he's terrific. Yeah, and I, I would love to have that's, – that's the kind of people I was looking for. If Donald Trump had been draining the swamp, Pat Buchanan would have been in his administration. Paul Craig Roberts would have been in his administration. People like that uh, and Roger Stone who you know wrote the foreword to my book. He, I, I thought he'd be his chief of staff, but nobody. I mean there's not, there's not a single outsider in there. So, But if you could match up a Pat Buchanan with Ralph Nader, who's a great guy on the left who I admire very much, if you had Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan – and they could have come together. They they had they agreed on a tremendous number of issues, but I just they just didn't seem to be able to to get themselves together. And I, I thought this time if you could have put the Trump forces with Bernie Sanders, and again it looks like they and they were really opposed on a lot of things, but they were basically rallying for the same kind of populist causes as far as trade. I think you could have gotten a lot of them together on foreign policy. I, I think in both groups, they were tired of our foreign policy of all war and no peace all the time. Uh, I think the young people could have rallied together. But again, they just they just couldn't do it. I mean, I, I know for a fact, Cynthia McKinney, for instance, I, I was trying to – the little circles I have, I don't have very much influence, but I do have a few contacts. And I was trying to just through Cynthia McKinney, she – would have been very interested in being Donald Trump's vice presidential candidate. And I, I thought that would have been an absolutely dream ticket. It would have been unbeatable because you take away the two the two tags they were throwing at Trump all the time, the two labels, sexist and racist. Because right. Cynthia, McKin Cynthia McKinney is a real deal. She's no <laughs> she's no Uncle Tom. She's she's radical and she's one of a kind, but nobody could possibly criticize her for not being black enough or whatever. <laughs> Political correct, politically correct nonsense you can come up with, and she would have been very interested, but they weren't interested, and uh, that's that's the problem. That that they, if if you could come together like that, and that's what America needs. They need to come together on the things, the big issues. I think we all can be in agreement on all of us outside the swamp, but it just doesn't seem like that's possible, and so we we just fall back into this, and we end up. Fighting constantly about the, you know, you have this imaginary Russian collusion story out there, or you have arguing about transgender bathrooms, stuff that are just distractions, or you know, should we bomb Syria or not? Nonsense like that. Uh, North Korea, you know, who's who's crazier, King Jong Un or, or Trump? You know, whose hair is worse? I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff we argue on. Instead of you know, when are we going to rebuild this country? When are we going to restore our borders? When right. are we going to do something to help the vast majority of people? Well, I think we can do both. I mean, I, I happen to be someone who who thinks that uh, you know the, the the idea of North Korea getting a nuclear uh, bomb is a very serious problem. I think we can do both. I think we can build infrastructure, and I think we can contain. Uh, um, North Korea, and I think we can build infrastructure and and bring back factories and also, uh, you know, contain Iran, because I do think those those two countries pose a threat. I think you know we have to have uh, a, 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 a foreign policy that's that is is designed to protect American citizens, and I think those two countries potentially. Um, you know, could be a, an existential threat, but I think right now the biggest existential threat is is um, internal, yeah. and I and I and I see it in, on college campuses, uh, churning out graduates who hate Western civilization. That's that what right. that's what concerns me the most. 
Yeah, well, I think I think it's it, more than Western civilization. I think they hate whiteness, uh, and I, I think they just hate the and and most of them, ironically enough, are white. But you know, my, Michael Moore, a, a stupid white male, wrote a book called Stupid White Males a long time ago. It was a bestseller. So no one seems to sense the irony there that these are and, and these young people. Yeah, I've seen them. If you watch Infowars and things like that, they'll go. One of the few good things left. I mean, Infowars has become a, too much of a Trump cheerleader for me, but they still send their guys out on the street and talk to these uh, social justice warriors. And it's it's really interesting to see what's out there because it's it's frightening sometimes because I mean sometimes they don't even appear to have the power of speech. They'll just scream like animals or put their hand, literally put their hands over their ears they don't want to hear what you're saying and uh, or they'll just sit down and start screaming it just and they don't seem to be able to their entire uh, protest is just kind of a general protest against they don't want Trump in the White House even though he's really not doing anything to threaten them at all other than just saying stupid stuff but uh, they they seem to hate the concept of whiteness and I I will say, whatever. I, you know, people are born whatever they're born. I was born white. I had nothing to do with it. I, I can't. Nobody can control what race they are. And I, the concept of of someone being ashamed of their skin color. How, why would anybody be ashamed of being white? You had nothing to do with it, or being. Why would you be proud of it either? You had nothing to do with it. So, I don't understand this. But too many white people apologize just for being white, which is ridiculous. We are what we are. But we have to get past this uh, into the content of our character, as Martin Luther King uh, once urged us to do. I don't think he'd uh, look too favorably on, upon uh, uh, the way the, uh, the social justice warriors act now, because all they do is judge people by the color of their skin. And certainly white people are judged that way all the time. And it's, it's ridiculous because it's almost as if if they're hearing you talk and you're white, they're not even listening to anything you say. And so how can you possibly have any kind of a dialogue like that? So, And, and again, the, the irony is that almost all the young people you're talking about, the vast majority of them are white themselves. So I, I don't think we've ever had a situation like that where a particular race of people is so hates and loathes themselves. I, I've talked to a few people and say, what, what are you saying? You, you hate all whites but yourself? I mean, do you hate your parents? Do you hate, if you have kids, do you hate your kids? Do you hate your siblings? Do you hate your ancestors? I, I don't understand. They're all white. So, I mean, do, do they have no value too? So it makes no sense to constantly kind of categorize people and, and the, this white privilege nonsense and all that stuff, which is ridiculous because you carry it to its logical extreme. That means the poorest people in America, which happen to be overwhelmingly white in Appalachia, and they were ignored by anybody until the, for everybody until the Kennedys visited them, and nobody else since the Kennedys really is, has gone and even looked into their plight. Uh, his, his daughter, Rory Kennedy, RFK's daughter, had a couple nice little uh, uh, documentaries she did about that. They're fascinating for people to watch. You want to see real poverty in this country. But no one seems to care. You know, they, they apparently have white privilege, some kind of privilege that an Oprah Winfrey doesn't have. I mean, that's this is the theory. And it's insane, and it's impossible to have a dialogue with people like that who are so blinded by such self-hatred. Well, that's just it. You can have a dialogue, and these people will be voting en masse yeah. uh, in the next in the midterms and, and thereafter. And here in Canada, they're all coming uh, voting age, and then they're going to be newspaper publishers. If there are still such things as newspapers, they're going to be council councilmen and women. They're going to be on the board of education. This is what frightens me. Yeah, well, and that's exactly you're you're talking about. We're already seeing a lot of this is a kind of residue from the hippie era because the baby boomers are obviously fully in charge now. 
But it's hard to even imagine. It, well, assuming America is still exists in some form in, the, in 20 years, which I don't know, it's probably debatable at this point. But if they do, yeah, to imagine that the way some of these uh, young people, to watch them, you know, with the primal screaming and they're just uh, losing it over nothing. They don't even know why they're upset. They don't even, you, can't, you try to ask them what they're protesting and they, they don't even know. They can't even tell you. They can't quantify it, but to imagine what it's going to be like when they're in charge, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a very sad prospect. But again, I, I, have feel, I feel for them because I have a general, a lot of empathy for the uh, millennial children. I mean, my, my children are millennials, and I don't think we're leaving them a very good country. Uh, I think the baby boomers, my generation, I came in at the tail end of the baby boomers. I think we've done a miserable job of running things. I think we've become the most narcissistic generation ever. We're the ones that you know went from flower power to uh, he who dies with the most toys wins and that kind, that kind of nonsense. Looking out for number one, um, those those were the credos and, and it had a great impact on everyone. And you can see, I think that's why even on the left, uh, the, the the left is never going to counteract the the uh, love of greed and so forth of the Paul Ryan types because they have a lot of that in them themselves. I've talked to people on the left who are just you know, strident social justice warriors that will call you racist at the drop of a hat. They can't, they'd love to see you get fired over a slip of the tongue, but they don't really care too much about war or peace. And they don't, they don't, they don't care about the issues I'm talking about. And they'll have this kind of hard ass attitude. Well, you know, that's a, Hey, you need to work hard. I did. Well, you know, I was there. Baby boomers didn't work any harder than anyone else. And we had it much easier. Jobs were much easier to get. Um, they were better paid for the time, and certainly the Safeway example uh, demonstrates that. And they were like, there, it was just you had a lot more opportunities than, than than kids have today. How do folks get a hold of uh, Survival of the Richest? Well, you can, you can get it through Amazon. Um, you know, it's the easiest place to get it. The publisher is Skyhorse Publishing. It's in most Barnes and Noble bookstores. It's uh, it's out there. You know, it's it's easy to find. And I uh, I, I really I'm, I'm trying to push it as much as I can. And I think, unfortunately, the the message behind it is one that a, a lot of people, even that are in the dilemma of of living paycheck to paycheck, are just reluctant to face because to to look at it and read all the evidence there and look at the statistics and understand just how America has been – the system has been rigged so in favor of the wealthy and how there's been such a transfer of wealth upwards into fewer and fewer hands is something people don't – they just like to imagine that they can still make it if they just work hard enough. And hey, some people can, but the vast majority are lagging behind because the system is rigged in favor of the wealthy. Maybe uh, I'll encourage Democrats if they really want to rediscover the roots of their own party um, – <laughs> Maybe they need to look at uh, survival of the richest. Maybe you should send one to all of the uh, uh, the members of the House on the Democratic side. Well, Ber- Bernie Sanders has a copy. Oh, he does. I know, I, oh, he got a copy. I, know, I never heard back from him, surprisingly enough. And uh, some other liberal politicians do, too, as well. And it's uh, – I, 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 I really thought we might hear back from him, but uh, no, we didn't. And it's – again, I think it's it's just not – even even when the Bernie Sanders types talk about living wage and raising the minimum wage, and that's true, but the, the raising the minimum wage really is irrelevant uh, unless you have it you need it needs to be tied to a maximum wage. And I know that's a very difficult thing to do, but you need to have something where, okay, if the CEO of a company can give a forty million dollar uh, golden umbrella to somebody when they fail and miserably run the country in the ground just to go away, 
then you ought to be able to pay everyone there at least 50000 or something. There, are, there ought to be a ratio. Of, if the company is doing that well, that it has millions to just fritter away on somebody who ran the country into the company into the ground, then everybody there ought to be making at the very least a very livable wage. That's not the way it works. And of course, you would you would correspondingly smaller businesses, and it would obviously the ratio would be much much lower because a lot of those businesses are struggling too. But the bigger companies, when you when you see these the CEO pay the way it is, if they're paying their management that kind of money, they ought to be paying uh, their janitors, their file clerks, uh, data entry, whatever whatever you, whatever you have at the lower end of the uh, spectrum. There, they all ought to be making an extremely livable wage or more because obviously they have the money to do it. Survival of the richest: how the corporate, how the corruption of the marketplace and the disparity of wealth created the greatest conspiracy of all. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. It's time to dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs. But before that, I'll fill you in on what lies ahead on episode 49 of Conspiracy Unlimited. That drops this Friday. You know what else happens Friday? It's the weekly draw and your chance to win a copy of My Strange Planet Volume 1 and 2 CDs. And if you want to participate, it's real simple. Just rate and review this podcast, grab a screenshot, email it to me at richardserrett1 at gmail.com. Richard Serrett one at gmail.com. And don't forget to include your complete name and mailing address. Your name goes into the ginormous cheese puffs jar and then be listening to this podcast every Friday for your name. Good luck. So have you tried life extensions, mega green tea extract yet? No. Oh man, you're missing out. Life extensions, mega green tea extract provides powerful antioxidant effects throughout the body. Green tea contains health-promoting polyphenols, including a powerful antioxidant, which has been the subject of extensive scientific research. Pour on these multiple health benefits. Green tea is a powerful antioxidant that supports cell membrane integrity, boosts liver detoxification, enhances immune function, and helps maintain healthy blood cholesterol, LDL and triglyceride levels, and much more. Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract is decaffeinated, yet it contains more polyphenols in one capsule than seven cups of green tea. The Chinese have used green tea for therapeutic purposes since 2000 BC. More recently, volumes of published scientific findings attest to its multiple health benefits. One capsule a day of Mega Green Tea Extract is all you need. Give your body what it needs. Order right now from Life Extension and save 25%. Just go to smartclickidea.com. That's smartclickidea.com. Smartclickidea.com. Coming up on episode 49 of Conspiracy Unlimited, Sloane Bella, the sexy psychic. She lived on the streets of Toronto as a teenager, and her psychic abilities probably saved her life on several occasions. She'll talk about that, plus how she was watched over by the spirit of Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 